Uh, first, I just want to thank Pastor Ralph and the rest of the elders for this opportunity. It's an honor to preach to you all this morning. So turn your Bibles to Psalm 12. Again, Psalm 12. This is the word of God, and it's eternally true. To the chief musician on an eight-stringed harp, a psalm of David. Help, Lord, for the godly man ceases, for the faithful disappear from among the sons of men. They speak idly, everyone with his neighbor. With flattering lips and a double heart they speak. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips and the tongue that speaks proud things. Who have said with our tongue we will prevail, our lips are our own, who is Lord over us. For the oppression of the poor, for the sighing of the needy, now I will arise, says the Lord. I will set him in the safety for which he yearns. The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver tried in the furnace of earth, purified seven times. You shall keep them, O Lord. You shall preserve them from this generation forever. The wicked prowl on every side when vileness is exalted among the sons of men. Let's pray. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. You who are our strength and our redeemer. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. So I had originally set out to prepare a sermon on flattery. And if you saw from our cross-reference texts, that's what they had. And in the bulletin, it's called that. Um, and I want to do this for two reasons. One is I'd never heard a sermon on flattery before, but uh, two is it's how pervasive this sin is. So I have a psychology degree with a Bible minor, and one place I see this pervasively is in counseling. Um, after realizing it's pervasive in that context, pervasiveness, excuse me, uh, I've seen it elsewhere too. But for a sole sermon, I found that the topic proved too challenging. However, I had already chosen Psalm 12 as my sermon text, and as you saw, it had a lot to say, not only about flattery, but the other sins of the tongue. And I think it's a helpful uh, book, for, or excuse me, a psalm for us to look at, especially on the heels of Pastor Ralph's sermon. As you well know, the, God, the, the um, book of James has a lot to say about the tongue, and so this is a helpful chaser for that series. So um, I will uh, briefly here examine the structure of Psalm 12, and then I will draw out two points for us from the psalm. Uh, Robert Alter helpfully describes this psalm as a prophetic supplication, or uh, excuse me, prophetic supplication, yeah. It's uh, both because it has that culture castigating language that we find uh, throughout the prophets, but it also has that lament quality that we see in many of David's psalms. So as for its structure, we've got verses one through four where David laments the disappearance of the righteous, leaving only wicked men with wicked speech. And then we see uh, it's in the midst of that that David calls for God to answer. He, he prays to God. Verse 5, God answers that prayer and rises up in judgment. Then in six, verses uh, 6 through 7, David praises God for the enduring pure word and its preserving power. And then finally in verse 8, David provides a summarizing statement to the whole psalm. So like many of the other psalms, it follows a chiastic structure. Um, it's a fancy word, but it just means that it goes following this pattern. So you've got A, B, C, B, A, right? So the B, A's have something similar to them, the B's have something similar, and then the C is the linchpin. So there are 70 words in this psalm in Hebrew, and the 35th to the 36th word is right where that pivot point is. So it's beautifully structured. Um, so the chiasm, the A's comprise verses 1 and 2, and then 7 and 8. And both of these are framed that way because they both use third-person language. Um, and then the next one is, uh, let's see, oh, in the second person, excuse me. They both have uh, second-person language. The Bs are verses 3 and 4 and verse 6, and those are both in the third person. 
And one in th three and four, it's that prayer of request that David has. And then verse six is that prayer of praise, exalting God's word. And then finally, verse C, or not verse C, the, the linchpin, the C in this chiasm is verse five, where God answers that prayer. So I see two points I want to draw out of this text for our consideration this morning. First, we are a people of unclean lips, and we dwell among a people of unclean lips. And then second, by contrast, the word of the Lord is pure and endures forever. All right, so let's look at that first point. We are a people of unclean lips, and we dwell among a people of unclean lips. Let's look at the verses that concern that. Starting with verses 1 and 2. Help, Lord, for the godly man ceases, for the faithful disappear from among the sons of men. They speak idly, everyone with his neighbor, with flattering lips and a double heart they speak. And then moving down to verse 4. Who have said with our tongue we will prevail, our lips are our own, who is Lord over us? And then finally in verse 8. The wicked prowl on every side when vileness is exalted among the sons of men. So this is how David describes his time. And I would say it's also a pretty good description of our time as well. So I want to look at each of these statements that David makes about his culture and then see how they apply to our culture today. Um, starting with uh, David saying, few are the righteous. Not much to say about this other than looking around, it does feel that way. <laughs> it's just, there's nothing more really to say. It's, it's, there's not many righteous out there. Um, then next, today, like David's day, vileness is exalted. So I'm jumping down to that verse 8. So according to verse 8, because vileness is exalted, the wicked dwell on every side. So we might ask, why is crime going up today? Well, vileness is exalted. The Lord is giving us over to our sin. We're getting more of what we're asking for as a culture. So when someone says, well, God, you know, God is going to judge our culture, right, for all of this vileness, I would say, no, the vileness itself is God's judgment, is God giving us over. And we'll look at Romans 1 to, to see how that works, how God describes that. So verse 21 so of Romans 1 says, because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were they thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. So that's the setup. Then looking down at verse 34, because of this, therefore, God gave them up to uncleanness in the lusts of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves. Then down further, verses 26 through 27, for this reason, again, God gave them up to vile passions, for even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise, also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burning their lust for one another, men with men, committing what is shameful, and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error, which is due. And then looking down a little further in verse 28, as even they, oh, excuse me, and even as they did not retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting. So when God comes to judge a people, for their willful, willful not turning to him, for their willful not thanking him, for their willful not glorifying him, for turning instead to futile thoughts, he gives them over to gross idolatry and then into vileness. And its vileness is then exalted, which then the wicked increase, crime and other threats increase, and then we further give ourselves over. It's this pattern, of, this is a pattern of God giving us over to our sin. Well, what's the proper response? Repent, right? Turn to him, call on him to rescue us. And as we see in this psalm, this is the kind of prayer that God delights to answer. So we saw today, like in David's day, few are the righteous and vileness is exalted. Well, also today, like in David's day, men speak idly to their neighbor. So verse 12 says, they speak idly, everyone to his neighbor. Uh, first off, a question, is this just small talk? Maybe, uh, a little. 
Uh, the word here translated idly can mean worthless or empty, which I'd say sometimes small talk can be, or it can mean fake or false. Uh, idleness is, is when one's conversation turns only to empty and vain things. God hates that. I would say small talk is fine, right? It's a way of sort of breaking the ice with somebody and, and, and kind of getting to know someone. But as we saw in James, we are to reign in our tongue. Uh, we are to bridle it, using the language of James. So therefore, if we have small talk, we should be conscientious and intentional. We shouldn't be frivolous with our words. We shouldn't go into, use idle words. We should speak intentionally, in other words. It's the opposite of frivolous. This is because, as the Lord Jesus says in Matthew 12, but I say to you that for every idle word men may speak, they will give an account of it on the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. From what Jesus says here, we can see that there are no such thing as throwaway words, ultimately. For everything we say, we will have to give an account. Therefore, be careful and intentional with all your words. Don't speak idly. I also think that idle chatter here is getting your mind off vain things deceptively, partially to deceive yourself, right? Following Romans 1, suppressing the truth and unrighteousness, or you may have heard the expression, whistling as you pass the graveyard, right? This sort of Pollyannish use of idle things and idle thoughts in order to distract yourself from the, the threat of God's judgment. But I also think that these idle words are to deceive your neighbor. This is also implied. So it is evident that, uh, that of this because not only does I mention the word idle can mean fake or false, but the Hebrew parallelism here also illustrates it. And Hebrew parallelism is this, is, is another word for it is thought rhymes, right? It's, it's this thing we see all over the Bible. It's these two closely related ideas put together in a poetic coupling um, and they're everywhere throughout the Bible. So, and I say this because the next line is, with flattering lips and a double heart they speak, right? There's deceptive speech. Um, so we're going to look at that now. So we saw today, like in David's day, few are the righteous, vileness is exalted, men speak idly to their neighbor, but also today, as in David's day, men have double hearts, and they're full of deceit. So the words comprising double heart here in the Hebrew are literally heart and heart. Um, in other words, they're duplicitous, right? Double. Um, two. But this double heart is also a half-heartedness, interestingly. So, i.e., not meaning really meaning what you're doing because of some other contrary internal second heart informing what you do. So remember that the Apostle James discusses this in James chapter 1. He says, but let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind, or let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord, for he is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Yet, if Yahweh is God, serve him. If Baal is God, serve him, right? God hates that, that double heart, that duplicitousness. He, he wants you to be in or out. Um, for the wicked speak lies. But it's also, well, it also means deception, right? Double heart meaning you've got your true intentions and then your false intentions that you put forward. Um, and the wicked, this is the language that they speak. It's the language of lies. They follow their father, the devil, and he is a, a murderer and a liar from the beginning, as Jesus says in John 8. So the devil's language is lying. That's what he speaks, and so do his servants. I remember in my youth uh, thinking about politics and how odd politicians seem to accuse each other of lying. And I remember thinking, it's not that often that like, a lie is exposed and that they really are lying. Like, it's easy for them just to accuse each other of that. 
And it's amazing to look back on that, at my naivete, because lying is everywhere. I mean, not just in politics, but that's what we're looking at. I mean, just think about the brazen lies and changes of position in the last few years. I mean, you can watch a presidential press, press conference, and honestly, for either side, and you'll see brazen lies on display, one after another. Or watch the media, and whatever they proclaimed as truth last week now is a, a, a de degraded lie that's only you know, believed by the lowest reprobate. So like we saw today, like in J uh, David's day, few are the righteous, violence is exalted, men speak idly to their, to their neighbor, and they have double hearts full of deceit. Now we'll look at the next one. Today men speak with flattering words, which is where my sermon was originally going to go. So flattering lips, flattery there literally in the Hebrew just means smooth. So it's the same word that in David picking up five smooth stones, same word. Um, but it's interesting because the idiom of smooth does translate well into English, right? If we would speak in politics again, speak of a, a politician as having smooth words, we would mean he's smarmy, right? It's not a compliment to say someone has smooth words, potentially. I mean, it's in the right context. And it can mean the same thing as the Bible. So the Apostle Paul also talks about smooth words in Romans 16. He says, for such men are slaves, not of our Lord Jesus Christ, but of their own appetites. And by their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. So flattery is often associated with lying in the Bible because flattery is a species of lying. So I would define flattery as false praise or encouragement used to manipulate someone. But a subtype of flattery I want to look at is the flattery that is to give someone a false comfort instead of an honest rebuke. So King Solomon says this in Proverbs 28, 23. He who rebukes a man will afterward find more favor than he who flatters with his tongue. So as you can see here, Solomon is directly contrasting the idea of flattery and rebuke. They're two ends of the spectrum. Well, they're opposite things. They're not, they're not on a continuum. Um, another type of flattery is when one seeks false comfort. So this is a flatter you as the person are seeking yourself. So an example of this we can find in Psalm uh, 36, uh, which says, the beginning, the beginning of the psalm, I think it's verse 2, there is no fear of God before his eyes, for it flatters him in his own eyes concerning the discover of his iniquity and his hatred of it. So in other words, instead of fearing God, the wicked man flatters himself that there is no God to fear, and therefore his sin won't be judged. So again, this type of subtype of flattery is kidding yourself with false comfort. Uh, Whitney had a nominally Christian friend uh, who was wanting to divorce her husband a number of years ago. And she was reaching out to Whitney and, and kind of asking what Whitney thought about this. And Whitney said, you shouldn't do it. You don't have biblical warrant to, to, to uh, divorce him. Um, so eventually her friend just stopped talking to her about it and only sought out her friends who would be willing to tell her that she's brave for doing it. And of course, she ultimately did divorce her husband. Um, another place we see this kind of sneakiness or, or willingness to hear flattery is the, in the Westminster Confession, they mention this. They say, uh, so speaking of men who want to unlawfully divorce, men uh, who are, 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 are seeking divorce are apt to study arguments, unduly to put asunder those whom God has joined together in marriage. So the inclination is to look for arguments that might support your case. You're, you're not content with the things that the Bible says clearly. You want to find, oh, there's probably someone somewhere that argues it. And I, to put this in modern parlance, we can always find someone online who's willing to argue whatever position we're wanting to justify. So I'm not going to get into vaccines. I'll leave that up to your conscience. But I only meant them to say, whatever your position on them, you can take. You can find someone online who will justify it for you and flatter you for your position. And of course, this 
I'm on a variety of topics, not just vaccines, can make it really difficult to find out what the actual truth is, because so many people online are ready to, to flatter you with, with the, the correct opinion to have on a subject. And of course, let's not forget the words of the prophet Ezekiel and the prophet Jeremiah, that wicked leaders heal the wound lightly, saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. So we can find those wicked leaders ourselves, right? If you search, you'll find Bible teachers who are willing to flatter you by justifying every sinful inclination of the heart you could imagine. You'll find that false peace and comfort being given to you. So, get us back on track. We saw today that uh, in today, like David's day, few are the righteous, vileness is exalted today, men speak idly to their neighbor today, they all have double hearts and are full of deceit and use flattering words, and also men boast and act like they're not going to face judgment. Verses three and four. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips and a tongue that speaks proud things, who have said with our tongue we will prevail, our lips are our own, who is Lord over us. Now, the phrase YOLO isn't in parlance anymore. It was more when I was just in college, but uh, that phrase, you only live once, right, if you don't know what it means. Uh, that sentiment still exists. That sentiment is in my generation, it's in the generation below mine, uh, there's this apathetic sort of demeanor taken towards the big questions of life, and instead there's this desire to maximize their lustful experiences in this life. So many push down that universal witness to the human conscience that there will be a final judgment of all things and that you will be held accountable. Um, so even if many do explicitly not say the things that the people are saying in this psalm, right, that, oh, who's Lord over us? Well, our lips are our own. Deep down, they are saying, who is Lord over us, if they are spurning the true and living God. So would they really lie? Also, furthermore, just building on this, would they really lie and boast and flatter as they do if they not convince themselves that there's going to be no judgment for idle words? And in verse 5, when God does break in, he shows the foolishness of this sentiment by showing us that there is indeed a Lord over us all, over them all, over them, over us, over all. So, we expect, with all these things I've laid out, the wicked to do these things. But if we're honest, like the prophet Isaiah, we can say, I'm a man of unclean lips, right? And I dwell among a people of unclean lips, which is, of course, where I got my, my point description. Um, today, Christians, too, fall into these sins of the tongue. We are not immune. We, too, adopt the speech of worldlings, and we need that sanctifying coal from the altar just as, as much as Isaiah did. So, for example, Today you'll find pastors uh, who flatter those who disturb the peace at church by not confronting them. Many pastoral writers throughout, histories, throughout church history often spoke of the duty to disturb a false peace. So think of the Apostle Paul's confrontation of the Apostle Peter, of move, after the Apostle Peter moved from the Gentile table to the Judaizer table when the Judaizers walk in, walked in at the love feast. Right? It was probably really awkward for everyone in the room when he confronted him but it was what needed to be done. It was the job of a faithful shepherd to confront publicly that public sin. So imagine being at a buffet and someone's going, to, going up and intentionally sneezing at all the food. It's literally the manager's job to disturb a false peace and to go up and to confront that man. And so it is with shepherds. Their main job is dealing with the sin and tough situations so that the people, the congregation doesn't have to. So pastors, not only do that, but pastors, you'll find pastors who flatter people with functionally smoothed out versions of the Bible which don't confront the sins that would get them into trouble, right? And how many pastors stay away from being prophetic? That's often the way that these pastors that don't want to do that will define it. They'll say, oh, that's, that's being prophetic. Now, I've met many, I won't name names, but who say, 
It's great that other pastors are called to be prophetic. I think that's awesome. Um, however, that's not my calling. But I would argue that one cannot be a faithful pastor and refuse to be prophetic. It's like he's saying, I see the wolf coming, but I don't have a prophetic ministry. That's someone else's job to warn the sheep. And I'm, of course, drawing that from Jesus' contrast of the hirelings and the shepherds in John 8. So on one hand, it makes sense why pastors don't want to be prophetic. And as Pastor Ralph mentioned himself, mentioned last week in the sermon, the prophets suffer because of their words, right? And who wants to suffer? It, but it's the wicked pastors that do not accept this suffering. And furthermore, the sheep's blood will be on their hands if they refuse to warn, as the prophet Ezekiel famously says. If the watchman sees the sword coming and does not blow the trumpet, and the people are not warned, and the sword comes and takes away any person from them, he is taken away in his iniquity. But his blood I will require at the watchman's hand. Now, I've been going after the sins of pastors, but this cuts both ways. For it's parishioners who also want flattering pastors. So lest we think it's just the leaders who are at fault, we as congregants also want men who will flatter us. Tim Bailey often says uh, this expression, we pay our pastors to lie to us, and we pay our comedians to tell us the truth. There's this quiet conspiracy between churchgoers and pastors, not to mention certain topics and wicked practices. And again with this, there's nothing new under the sun. For, of course, famously in 2 Timothy 4.3, the apostle Paul says, for a time will come where they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers who will scratch their ears. Furthermore, it's not just our leaders. We as regular churchgoers flatter each other, other churchgoers, instead of giving hard feedback and admonishing one another. You know, we don't want to talk to the father with the kids who are hellions about parenting. You know, we, we, we would, but as we just saw today, we're all in covenant together. We recite at baptisms the phrase that we as a congregation are going to help in that parent's duties of raising that child in the covenant. And so it is our, it's our duty. We, we have sworn ourselves to help in that, that work. And I, I will give one caution about confronting a parent. If you're going to confront someone about parenting, just make sure you've seen the videotape, not the snapshot, right? We all have tough weeks. So just make sure you see if it's a pattern before you say something. But, but we need a culture of rebuke that's okay with rebuke, where it's acceptable. Think about how many Proverbs speak about the goodness of rebuke. I mean, also, it's the way you rebuke is crucial. So that's, that is worth mentioning. Remember the warning that in Galatians 6, brothers, if a man is overtaken in a trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Bear one, another bur bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Rebuke needs to be done in a spirit of gentleness. And also, think about Jesus' letter to the seven churches in Revelation. He almost always has something positive to say about that particular church. Although I will point out, he doesn't always. <laughs> there are some places where Jesus does not have a positive word to say, and he moves right to the rebuke. So, and why does Jesus do that? Well, Jesus doesn't flatter, right? Jesus tells the truth, and sometimes there are situations where there literally is nothing you can point out that is a good thing in the situation. So keep that in mind. But if you can think of something that is honestly, you don't want to flatter a person, positive about whatever about them before you give that harder word it would be wise to do that um, and it's not just child rearing right this is something we should be willing to be rebuked when we see a sinful pattern or hear about a sinful pattern so remember that open rebuke in proverbs open rebuke is better than love concealed 
this is not a new problem either. Um, this is an interesting admonition I have here from Gregory the Great in the sixth century. He was struggling with, uh, there's no culture of rebuke in, in his churches. He says, Christian reproof from one of Christian to another seems to be almost banished from our churches. There is a quick eye to discern a brother's faults and a ready tongue to speak of them to others. But where do we find the faithful reprover of sin? Who is the man himself, without saying a word to anyone, uh, who goes to the man and between themselves faithfully warns, exhorts, and entreats the straying brother to return? The serious discipline of formal accusations, right, church discipline, by such a course would be in great measure rendered unnecessary. So we need to be sure we are faithful in admonishing and rebuking one another in a spirit of love and gentleness. So though we have sinned many ways with our tongues, whether sins of commission or, or omission, remember that we always have a recourse. As the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, if we were to judge ourselves, we would not be judged. Judging ourselves, also known as repentance, is a pure word we can speak. We've been talking about corrupt, wicked, word, wicked speech. That's a pure word, repentance. And we'll be turning our attention to pure words in the next section. So, in summary, for my first point, we've learned that wicked speech looks like it did in King David's day today, right? Nothing's new under the sun in that respect. And we saw that, you know, we may be dwelling among a people of unclean lips, but we are also a people of unclean lips. So it's by contrast with wicked speech that we'll turn our attention to the purity of God's word. So point two, let's say it again. The word of the Lord is pure and endures forever. So let's look again at Psalm 12. We're going to start now at verse 6. The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver tried in the furnace of earth, purified seven times. This is a miniature version of Psalm 119, right? Praising, we just sung a portion of Psalm 119, praising God for his word. Now, here specifically, David is praising God for his pure and enduring word and setting against the backdrop of these wicked men and their words. So if the wicked men speak one way, the righteous following God should speak another way, namely with pure words from God. What are some examples? Well, here's one. I mentioned it just a moment ago. Repentance is a pure word. So the word in the New Testament that we translate as repentance, literally, if you were to bring it over with its literal sort of meaning, means to speak the same. So in repentance, we're turning away from falsehood into truth, right? We're speaking the same about the sin that God would say. We're saying what God would say about our sin, that, you know, the same thing that God would say about our sin. Um, and therefore, it's pure because we're just saying back to God what he says about it in his word. Another pure word we can speak, we actually see in the psalm, and that's prayer. So following David's example in verse 3, words of prayer are the proper response in the midst of a trial, even asking God to destroy the wicked liars. So David prays in verse 3, May the Lord cut off all flattering lips and the tongue that speaks proud things. And then God answers that prayer in verse 5. This is God talking. For the oppression of the poor and the sighing of the needy, now I will arise, says the Lord. I will set him in the safety for which he yearns. God answers David's prayer. And after praising God's word in verse 6, after David does that, in verses 7 and 8, he praises God for preserving his people, even though the wicked are still around. Look at that again. Verse 7. You shall keep them, O Lord. You shall preserve them from this generation forever. The wicked prowl on every side when vileness is exalted among the sons of men. So remember earlier that because of this chiastic structure that David has uh, put in his psalm, verses 1 and 2 parallel verses 7 and 8. 
by their use of the second person, like we saw. And though the wicked are in both, right? We've got the wicked in the first verse and the last verse. Um, David at first is saying, well, the godly man ceases to be. There's no more godly in the land. But by the end, David has confidence that the Lord will preserve his people. You just saw him act, right? And even if the wicked people are still around, as we see in verse 8. So prayer then, following David's example, is God's prescribed means of preserving and protecting us and giving us a hope in the midst of trials. So following King's David, King David's example here in Psalm 12, as Pastor Ralph talked about in his sermon last Sunday, we're to use these pure words of prayer, and we are to hope and trust in the promises of found in the word of God in the midst of our trials. So just to repeat what we heard last week, we saw in James 5.16, confess your faults one to another and pray one for another, that you may be healed. The effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much, also as uh, Elder Arnie earlier shared with us. So Pastor Rolf exhorted us to trust this word from the Apostle James in prayer. Uh, Whitney and I learned about this kind of trusting uh, when we had the uh, trial of her closed womb. So we were open to children from the beginning of our marriage, um, but by about two years into it, no fruit, we were starting to get a little, feel a little anxious. And at first, our, our inclination was to not inquire, because sometimes it feels like if you don't know, you're less anxious. But we did eventually, Whitney did eventually go to the doctor and find out what was wrong. And we prayed that the Lord would open her womb. And the question crossed our, our minds. You know, when we're talking about having kids, should we say when we have kids, or we should, should we say if we have kids? You know, on one hand, I don't want to be presumptuous on God, but on the other hand, I want to be hopeful because God is kind and course he would do something like that and furthermore in the, in in scripture how many times does God show himself to be sovereign over the womb so I was reflecting back on this question during Pastor Ralph's sermon last week because he was saying that the phrasing that we've got uh, praying to receive wisdom right and you will receive wisdom in chapter one is a similar is the same as the phrasing in chapter five saying pray for the sick and they'll be healed and I realized that in the midst of this it's it's about our expectation so I, one thing I thought of was Daniel's Pastor Ralph, but uh, Daniel's three friends in the fiery furnace. Um, Nebuchadnezzar, so we'll look back at that story. Nebuchadnezzar asks them, who is the God who will deliver you from my hands? Right? Because they wouldn't worship and bow down. And they say, oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If it is the case, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the bur burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us from your hand, O king. But if not, let it be known, O king that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the golden image which you have set up. So they didn't know that if God was going to answer their prayer of deliverance, but their disposition was to hope that God would. And, he, uh, and so to answer my question from earlier, during the trial of Whitney's closed womb, and of course now we have three kids, but um, the thing I should have prayed at the time was, yeah, when the Lord opens her womb. You can, of course, do that in a way that's presumptuous. I, I don't want to say that's not a sin that we could fall into of being presum presumptuous on God, but our disposition should be God is kind. God is the kind of God who would answer that prayer, yes. And I, I think we've had a wonderful example of this in our midst with Canaan and Lauren. They're in the middle of this trial, and they've modeled for us this really well, that hopeful disposition in God's kindness. So let us join them with hopeful expectation as we pray for, for Lauren to be healed of her cancer. All right, so we've seen how we ought to pray with hopeful expectation in a trial. But David here it doesn't pray for deliverance specifically. He prays that the Lord would cut off all flattering lips. Can we pray this way about our enemies? 
Um, to answer our question, yes. I think it is appropriate to pray that way. And we should remember to pray in the authorized way that we have for us laid out for in, the, in the Psalms, right? We should be careful that we're not moving into our own imprecatory prayers that we make up out of our own head. But we, should, we sing them, of course, every Lord's Day. Um, there's probably an imprecatory aspect of one of the Psalms that we sing. In fact, as lies, flattery, and boasting increase around us and vileness is exalted and the wicked are now prowling on every side, we really ought to pray fervently, just as David did, that the Lord would cut off all flattering lips for the wicked of our day. For when the wicked are destroyed, the righteous rejoice. We see in the New Testament, the only example of the word hallelujah being used is the saints around the smoke rising up from Babylon being destroyed in Revelation. We should not, however, imbibe a, 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 vindictive, excuse me, a vindictive spirit. You know, Wilson jokingly says, we should not be praying imprecatory prayers when a guy cuts us off in traffic, right? We should be willing to overlook personal offenses. Um, but we should be principally zealous for God his glory and for his people. Um, so also in precatory prayers, let us not forget that sometimes when uh, their wicked tongue is proverbially cut off in silence, it's because of the salvation of the wicked. It's not always their destruction, but really it is. I mean, it's a form of destruction, right? Because the apostle Paul himself, what? He, he had wicked speech. He was breathing out threats and murders. And it was exactly at that moment that God pushed him down, right? And destroyed him in a sense, right? He, he, he's not... He's not in this glorious position anymore. He's in a kind of a wretched place. God destroys him, and he stops his, his wicked tongue. Um, and God, of course, did that by turning his heart. And if you, as you recall, it was so unbelievable that when Paul first started coming around the early church, the people were terrified because they couldn't possibly think this was true, right? Paul, the persecutor, it was tantamount to a resurrection from the dead. So pray that God would cut off all flattering lips and tongues that speak proud things, and hoping he does through the instrument of salvation, but if not, we will still rejoice when we are delivered. So we've seen from my first point in the text that we are a people of unclean lips and we dwell among a people of unclean lips, and that in all matters of evil, ourselves and the world use their tongues for evil. And then our second point, by way of contrast, we saw how the word of the Lord is pure and endures forever, and therefore we ought to speak with pure words such as repentance and prayer and trials trusting in the God who answers prayer. And we have for us a wonderful example in this psalm of God answering David's prayer in the midst of this trial. This is our hope that we have is rooted in the gospel. This hope that we have is rooted in the gospel, which has not been fully revealed to David, right? But in these last days has been revealed to us in Christ. And one place that Christ is partially revealed, I would say, in the psalm is an illusion we find in the psalm. So in verse 6, Repeating this again, the words of the Lord are pure words, like silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. So the words of the Lord go into this furnace of earth, of, in the fire, and they come out uh, not only protected, right? They, re they return from the fire, but they're, they're not hurt, uh, but they're even pure. And then in verse 7, you shall keep them, O Lord, you shall preserve them from this generation forever. Well, who is being preserved here? Are the words of the Lord being preserved or the people of God? Well, in some sense, yes, but obviously it's the people of God, but he's there's clearly an illusion or there's a, there's a parallel being drawn in the text. The people are preserved as his word is preserved from the furnace of earth. So Jesus, as the word of God, went into that proverbial furnace. Through his death, uh, burial, and resurrection, he returned, raised from the dead, and glorified in a new state. And so in the word of God himself, we too will be preserved, both in this generation and in that last day, when the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up 
we will be preserved through fi fire because of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. We can be where he is. Just as there was a son of God in the furnace with Daniel's three friends, which may have been the son of God, so will, be in our our, so will our Savior be in our midst with, when we're in a trial or on that final day. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this true word, the pure word. We ask that you would help us to have words that are pure. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.